This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women and addiction. Welcome back to Worth Recovery, a podcast featuring women and sex addiction. Uh, I'm Amy, recovering sex addict, and I've been sober since December 2nd of 2012. Just a reminder on an all call, I am looking for women in recovery who are willing to share their stories and would like to either be interviewed on the podcast or even just share their written story. So if that is you and you're willing to talk about it, um, please contact me via the website, worthrecovery.com. You can go to the women's stories area and put in your contact information. I'd love to have you um, on the podcast with me. Okay, so we're going to jump right in here for our topic today, though, because this is one of my favorite things to discuss. Practicing. I grew up with lots of practicing. Swim team, clarinet lessons, piano lessons, soccer practice. I definitely understood what practice was for and why we were supposed to do it. As an adult, though, I gained a whole new appreciation for practice when I became a teacher myself. As a piano teacher, I know that whether a child practices or not determines how fast they will learn and how much progress they'll make. When there is a good week of practice, I get really excited about their progress and their possibilities. But when there's a bad week, it's frustrating for me because we end up taking our lesson time basically to practice, right? And it's just not very fun. The same thing works in math, which I also teach. When a student learns a math skill and repeats it and practices it over and over and over again, it becomes habitual and part of their knowledge base. But the minute they stop practicing that skill, it loses priority in their brain, (laughs) falls further and further to the back of their mind. Years later, as an adult, when they're trying to help their child graph a line using slope-intercept form, it looks slightly familiar, but without finding a YouTube video to reteach yourself, you probably wouldn't be able to help your child at all. Same thing in sports, right? Years ago, like 16 or 17 years ago, I don't know, I took a tennis class and learned a lot of skills. Within a year, I was playing pretty well with some of my friends. I still have a very expensive racket that I bought and two or three containers of tennis balls. However, I haven't swung that racket in years. I wouldn't want to play with anyone except, well, you know, like maybe my six-year-old nephew who hasn't ever played before. I might, I might be better than him. Maybe, maybe. This is a principle practicing that we all know and have an understanding of. We know that in order to maintain proficiency in anything, music, sports, computer programming, mathematics, driving, running, drawing, cooking, reading, we have to practice. We know that some skills come back easier than others, like riding a bike, they say, right? Uh, Or so we want to believe, at least, that once we've learned something, it'll just come back. Or that once we've learned something, it's always accessible to us. Yet, I bet many of you aren't good at practice. A few months ago, I was teaching a really large class. There was a piano at the front of the room, and I asked how many people in in attendance there had taken piano lessons as a child. I would say probably about 70%, which 
ended up being like close to 100 people had raised their hand. They had taken piano lessons as a child. So I showed them a basic song and invited them to come up and play for us. It was a relatively easy song. It was just a few lines, but it required them to play multiple notes with both hands. And the audience just laughed at me. Not a single person volunteered. I persisted. Okay, just just one person. We need just one person to come up and play this song. But not one person wanted to come up and play for the class. Why not, I asked. Why can't you come up and play this song? You took lessons, right? You know how to play. Your parents spent money getting you trained. It's just a short song. Why can't you come up and play it? After a minute or so, a student volunteered. I haven't practiced in years, he said. I don't even know if I could read the notes anymore. Oh, that's right. Practicing. So practice, the word practice is a verb. It can be a noun, but in this case, it's a verb. Practice is a verb. Dictionary.com defines it this way. To perform an activity or skill repeatedly and regularly in order to improve and maintain one's proficiency. So practice means we repeat something over and over and over and over again in a manner that improves our proficiency at that activity or skill. Now, I do know that people can pretend to practice or say they're practicing and not really moving forward. What they're doing is not really done in a manner that helps them increase their skill and improve their proficiency. So Aristotle also said, one of the famous quotes from Aristotle is, we are what we repeatedly do. So I'm not a pianist if I'm not repeatedly playing the piano. I'm not an athlete if I am not repeatedly participating in athletic events. And not like a spectator athlete, right? Not watching them. By this same extension, I'm not in recovery if I'm not repeatedly and regularly practicing recovery in order to improve my proficiency in recovery. I think you know by now that I'm a huge fan of the 12 steps. And, uh, and so I love in step 12 where it says, we practiced these principles in all our affairs. I love that it doesn't say we adhered to these principles or we obeyed or followed these principles in all our affairs. It doesn't say we perfectly executed these principles in all of our affairs. It says we practiced these principles in all of our affairs. The minute we stop practicing recovery, we start to lose our proficiency in the skills that are required to live in recovery. We must make daily progress. We must repeatedly and regularly practice recovery. Now, I'm sure that you know that, but let me tell you, I might be a musician but I, I wasn't necessarily a good practicer to begin with. I tend to kind of do this in a cycle, right? I tend to be real. I tend to do really well for a period of time and then really poorly for a period of time. I get really motivated or want to learn something new and I'll put in the work to do it. Intense practice sessions for a few weeks. If I'm lucky, a few months. It might last a little bit longer, but then I'm off again, telling myself I deserve a break for working so hard for that period of time and congratulating myself on the progress that I made. Each time I restart the cycle, I get frustrated. Why couldn't I have just maintained the cycle? Because now I have to re- learn, reteach myself some of the same things over and over again. 
you know, that cycle, as I talk about it, kind of sounds familiar, right? It's sounds like something else I do. It's kind of just a version of my acting out cycle. Every time I would swear off acting out, I wasn't ever going to do it again, ever. It took, it would last for a period of time, maybe it's weeks, maybe months, maybe. And I would be diligent and do the things that would keep me in a good space. But then one, one day or night, I would take a break, you know, and I would just say, man, I've been working so hard. I've been doing so good. I congratulate myself on the few weeks or months of sobriety I had. And then, you know, I deserve, I felt like I deserved a break. So I would read a few personal ads or I would get online and look at a few images. And then I was a goner, totally acting out within a few days. When I would come up for air, swearing it off again, I'd be frustrated that I had to start over, reteach myself some things, rework my steps. You know, it's, it's the same cycle. So the question is, how did I break it? How did I break the cycle? How did I become a good practicer? Because it still takes daily practice to maintain recovery. Even three, five, I'm three years in on my sobriety and five years in on working recovery. So for me, it all started years and years ago. Let me tell you a story. In 1910, one of the only unexplored areas left in the world was the South Pole. Though some had made attempts to reach it before, the victory of the pole remained completely unconquered. Two of the world's leading explorers were both deep in preparations to be the first to the South Pole and claim it for their country. I can't even imagine that, right? Totally amazing to think you would be the first one to walk on that land. It would be covered in ice and snow, but still walk there to be the first one to see it. Let me tell you a little bit about each of these explorers. Robert Falcon Scott was leading the Terra Nova expedition, and he was an officer in the English Royal Navy and had attempted this before. In 1904, he had been closer to the pole than anyone in history, but they had to turn back because of some problems with supplies. He was determined, though, that this time was going to be it. He was going to be the first man to make it to the South Pole. He brought a team of 65 men total. Most of them stayed on the boat. Only six of them made the journey actually to the pole. And the rest stayed behind. He had the largest crew, the biggest team, and was ready to conquer the South Pole for the British. Okay, second team that was trying was led by a man named Roald Amundsen. And he was leading what they called the South Pole Expedition. And he was from Norway. He was a very well-known, well-traveled explorer. In just a few years earlier, in 1899, he was on the first ship that had wintered in Antarctica. And then in 1906, he was the first to travel Canada's Northwest Passage between the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. So he was really experienced in cold weather and wanted the victory of the South Pole more than anything else in the world. He brought a much smaller team with only 19 men and made the descent to the South Pole with only five. You know, a number of years ago, not long after starting my recovery journey, I heard about these explorers and the events that transpired during their journey. And the way I heard about it was through a book. Jim Collins, the author of the book Good to Great, studied these expeditions in his follow-up book called Great by Choice. 
The book is fantastic. In studying their writings and journals, Collins compares and contrasts their different approaches to their preparations and what made the winning team successful from the beginning. He then does what he's known for, which is take those lessons and apply them to businesses and different leadership styles. I was fascinated by this idea of these two men and these two explorers ready to conquer the South Pole. But there were definitely some differences in the way that they approached not only the expedition, but then also the journey on the ice. So let me just tell you about a few of them. We don't have time to talk about all of them, but let me just tell you about a few. So let's start with clothing. So Scott, he was the British exploring team, right? He decided, looking around and trying to figure out what they were going to wear, he decided to go with some new technology. Wool was the very newest fabric out on the market and proved to be much warmer than animal skins or any other type of fabric that they had ever had. It was largely untested, but he figured, you know, let's give it a shot, right? Let's try it. And so they brought, they made trousers and jackets and linings out of wool. And they were really excited. They were warm to begin with, really warm. But I don't know if you know this about wool or not, wool absorbs water. And so once they hit the ice and things started snowing, they learned very quickly that not only did wool absorb the water and moisture from the snow, when it did so, it became very, very heavy. And it didn't expel the moisture very quickly or very easily. And so as it became more and more heavy, it also would freeze. It wouldn't do a very good job of keeping them warm or protected. It became a problem for them. Amundsen, however, at, because he had been in several cold cold expeditions decided to stick with something he knew animal skins they went with the traditional clothing of animal skins to keep them warm and keep them secure while they were traveling on the ice just one difference another difference was transportation the most common method of exploration at that time used ponies these ponies would carry their gear they were tried and true they were tested they were something that that they had always done. Scott's team decided to travel with ponies. Now, there were some problems with ponies though. Um, one was that ponies sweat while they were traveling in the ice, on the snow. They had to continually wipe down these ponies with their sweat so that the sweat didn't freeze and then chill the animals to their bones. And so it became a problem, right? Having to continually stop wipe down the animals and keep going again. The other problem they had with ponies was food. Ponies eat grass. They eat grain. They don't eat meat or anything like that. And you can imagine finding grass and grain down in the South Pole was not a possibility, which meant they had to carry all of that grain with them to feed their horses with. It became a problem. There was a lot of problems that they had. Not only that, ponies are heavy. And so they lost quite a few ponies to ice. They'd fall through the ice or they'd get stuck in the snow, break legs, things like that. It became a, a big problem for them. But that was the method that they had chosen and that was what they wanted to do. 
Now, Amundsen, however, because of the time that he had spent in Canada and um, going through the Northwest Passage, he had become really familiar with dog sledding. And so Amundsen decided he wasn't going to bring ponies. He wasn't going to bring anything but dogs. They had a team, I believe, if I remember right, they started with about 60 dogs. These dog teams were raised and trained. They had been working with them for over a year. They knew exactly how to feed them, how to work with them, and how to get them to move. And so their dog sled teams became their mode of transportation. It allowed them to move faster. And because the dogs are carnivores, they could eat off the trail, just like the men were with the fish and the other things that they caught as they went along. And this became a huge difference. Although it seems small and insignificant, it became a huge difference in the way that they traveled. Now, by far, though, the most significant difference was their approach to the long hike to the pole. Navigating the boat down wasn't the hard part. It was the trek on the ice and the snow to the pole that was difficult. They had to be really strategic about what they were going to do and how they were going to make it all the way there and all the way back to the boat. So again, here we see two really differing ideas. Scott's idea was to capitalize on the good days. When the weather was good, they would push it and travel as far as they possibly could. Sometimes up to 30, 40, 50 miles in one day if the weather wouldn't cooperate with them. And they would do this day after day after day in good weather. But if the weather was bad, they would just kind of hunker down in their camp and rest. And that was their plan. So in reading the journals, Jim Collins points out that this wasn't a great idea for Scott. When there were several days of good weather back to back, they would be exhausted. They would push their teams 30, 40, 50 miles in a day. And sometimes for days on end, three or four days on end, then they would sit in their tents for about a week while they waited out a storm. There were a lot of problems with that. The men were not happy being exhausted all the time or being stir crazy and pent up in your tent all the time was not a great idea. And it was very difficult for their team. Amundsen's approach was drastically different. He decided that no matter what was going on, no matter what happened, every day they were going to move 20 miles. So he plotted out the entire trip. 20 miles every day, no matter what. Sunshine, ice storm, rain. Well, they didn't have any rain. Sunshine, ice storm, snow, injury. It didn't matter. Every day, 20 miles. And when you read the journals, you realize that some days, 20 miles was super easy. And they were done by noon. And his men would even push him. Let's go further. Let's go further. But he'd say, no, we've done our 20 miles. We're going to stop. We'll rest. We'll take care of the dogs. We'll do things we need to do. But other days, 20 miles took the entire day. And some days they didn't make it 20 miles. They only made it five or 10. With the amount of snow and ice storms that they had going on, there was a serious problem sometimes with moving. But the goal was every day to move 20 miles. And over the trip, he averaged actually 15.6 miles per day. So some days he couldn't move all that he wanted to, but he had a goal and every day he made progress towards it. Now, I'm sure you can guess, if you don't know already, who made it to the pole first? 
Roald Amundsen made it, and he claimed the South Pole for the Norwegians. And you can see pictures of this all over the internet if you want. It's really cool. But I think it's really, really important to note that both teams made it. Both teams made it to the South Pole. You can see pictures of Roald at the South Pole with the Norwegian flag. You can also see pictures of Scott with his five-man team at the South Pole with the Norwegian flag, right? Because they didn't make it first. But they both made it. They both achieved their goal. They both go in the history books of being some of the first people to ever be at the South Pole. I think it's also, though, equally important to note that only one team made it home to tell the tale. And that was Amundsen's team. All six members of Scott's team lost their lives in the trip home from the South Pole to the boat. Though they made it to their desired location, they were not able to make it home. Now, reading this for the first time, it just really, really resonated with me. It just sunk in. And I think it sunk in because... I could see myself and my logic and my thinking patterns in Scott, the guy that died, not the guy who made it. Scott, the team leader of the team that failed, that all lost their lives on the return trip. That's where I could see my own thinking patterns. And I realized I was a fair weather sprinter. As long as the weather was good, I would work night and day, long hours to get to my destination. But when the weather got bad, when the slightest hiccup showed up in my plans, I would pitch my tent, crawl in, and not come out for days. Sure, it was cold, windy, lonely, and I got restless in that tent, but I wasn't going to come out again until it was sunny. As I was reading and learning about these men and their experiences, the words that kept running through my head were these, at what cost? Sure, when I'm on and I'm sprinting, it's great. I don't understand why people around me aren't also so great. Come on. I want everyone to run at my pace, do what I'm doing, and not cause problems for me. But when I'm off, I am off. And I want no one to look at me. And I'm impatient. And I'm frustrated. And I'm stir crazy. And every little wind upsets me. And I feel like a victim. The cycle had to stop. The cost was too great. Sprinting was going to kill me, just like it killed Scott and his entire team. After reading these experiences and studying them further, the conclusion I came to was this. I must practice my recovery out of discipline and not out of emotion. I want to repeat that. I must practice my recovery out of discipline and not out of emotion. Every day, every day, no matter what storm is raging, outside or inside, because that is usually where my storm rages, I must pick up my camp and move my 20 miles every single day. I can't let the weather, my job, my family, my friends, or anything else get in the way. Some days the 20 miles are easy, like Amundsen's team. I'm done by noon and I'm thinking I should go further. On those days, I practice gratitude and mindfulness, I practice being present. I look for things I hadn't noticed before and I'm grateful for where I am in my recovery. I also look around and see if there are other people that I can help in recovery. But some days it takes everything I have to move 20 miles. All my energy, all my attention, all my focus just to move my 20 miles. And maybe I don't move 20 miles. Maybe it's only 10 or 12, but I move. 
I pick up my camp and I move. And then there are some days where it just doesn't happen at all. Like literally doesn't happen at all. But you know what? Not even Amundsen averaged his 20 miles every day. That was his plan. That was what he wanted to do. But he averaged about 15 and he won. There are days that it just doesn't happen. I don't hit my mark. I don't get anything done. And maybe I don't even try. And on those days, I also try to practice gratitude and mindfulness. I recognize that I'm not perfect. I reflect and try to figure out what is going on inside me that I don't want to pick up camp and move. What is keeping me stuck? What is keeping me where I am? When I'm honest and take some time to reflect, I always find the answers. I must practice recovery out of discipline and not out of emotion. My emotions are fickle. I have good and bad days. I have days where I don't want to do anything, just lay in bed with a good book and never come out. I have days when I have high amounts of motivation and I feel ready to conquer the entire world. On both days, I must move my camp. I must get up and move my 20 miles. I must practice recovery out of discipline and not out of emotion. So how do, how do we do it? How do we become good practicers? How do we find the discipline to move our camp every day? And that, my friends, is going to be the topic of our next podcast. What can we do? What skills can we learn that will help us practice recovery out of discipline and not out of emotion? I'm excited to share some of these ideas and some of the things that I've done. And I'm hoping that you'll also share with me some of the ideas that you have about how you do this in your lives and in your recovery. So I'm super excited. Tune in for episode six about how we practice recovery out of discipline and not out of emotion. Just a reminder that wherever you're at, whatever's going on in your life, however low you might feel, however far you've gone, I want you to remember that you are worth recovery. Continue the fight, Worth Warriors. Until next time, Amy. stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.